Peace be to you. In the Cabin of Eden. Let us begin with a question. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Curiously Catholic and Evangelion production. And before I get started, you may know something slightly different. That's right. We're in a new room and it's uh, my spare room. I have been doing this downstairs in my dining room, but that's just not big enough. Well, it's too big. There's echoes and it's horrible. But also, you may notice I'm wearing a different T-shirt and my face anymore. That's right. I am uh, in my third year of nursing. And because of things such as COVID and I'm looking after very vulnerable babies on a pediatric ward, I had to shave my beard so I could wear a mask to protect them. So it's, it's quite upsetting for me. But, uh, you know, we do all things for Christ and he brings about glory through our pain. That's right. But as you all know, this is Curiously Catholic and Evangelion Apostolate. And in this podcast, we pick the brains of Catholic enthusiasts to try to get to the bottom of how to be a Catholic in contemporary times. My name is Dominic Malgeri. And unless you haven't been paying attention for the last week as we built up to, we are interviewing Christopher West. So welcome, Christopher. Can we see you? There he is. You and all of your listeners. Thank you very much. How are you doing? Life in Pennsylvania is uh, cold right now. We have a lot of snow. And uh, I'm, let's see, you are Saturday morning. I'm Friday afternoon, evening. So it's crazy how yeah. this technology allows us to unite from the other side of the world. It's pretty crazy. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it, I, I can never get my head around it because obviously my, my family are from uh, the UK. And so I'm always trying to work out. You know what you know can i call you right now it's like, oh no it's two in the morning you're not here okay cool cool, right. cool. uh <laughs> but yeah yeah it's amazing how uh we've all been connected and i think you know i guess we could make it a link to you know i think something uh john paul ii uh talked about in one of his homilies about how god doesn't see borders and god doesn't see uh countries because we're all one uh one country to him and his people hey eh? yeah one one human race I remember there's a scene of John Paul looking out his window during the Jubilee year 2000, and he wrote about this. He said he would look at the people from all over the world who were standing in line to go through St. Peter's, the holy doors at St. Peter's. And he said, I would look out and, you know, we could have a temptation just to look at this mass of humanity. But he said, I would look at individual people. And he said, I would, I would ponder the story of a life. And I, I always love that about John Paul II. He he was always interested in the individual. That's why even if you were in a stadium with 80,000 people and John Paul II drove in, you felt like you were kind of almost one-on-one -on -one with him. He he was so interested in the person. And this has, this has inspired me tremendously. Yeah, it is phenomenal. Uh, I think that reminds me of like one thing that I do on the side is I try to do a bit of photography. and. Um, one thing that's always um i've always like wrestled with with photography is you know you get a good picture and say oh wow that's a really good picture of you and then i realized like but that isn't a picture of you that's a split second because like the, the shutter speed is like you know a 25th of right. a second and that, right. that's how you look that and you will never look like that again and like so it's not really telling a story and like you know especially when you see all these like Instagram models and like just models in magazines, it's like there's, 
you know, there's so much more to that person, but this is all we get to see um, for the moment. And I just think there's a, I don't know, I really wrestle with that when I'm taking pictures. <laughs> yeah, there's, I think you can use it as an art form to, to either convey the mystery of the person or to mask it, to shield it. Uh, John Paul II talks about this, in fact, in his Theology of the Body. He says, for example, the difference between pornography and the naked art in the Sistine Chapel, he says they're both portraying the, the naked body, but in one, the goal of the artist is to convey the dignity of the person, right? That's Michelangelo. Whereas the intention of the pornographer is to obscure the dignity of the person. And so from this perspective, we could say that the problem with pornography is not that it shows too much of the person, but it, that it shows too little of the person. So I, I understand the dilemma you, you're feeling there as a photographer, but I wouldn't say um, I wouldn't say throw away the art form. I would just say find a way to use your art form in a way that conveys the dignity and the truth about the human person. It's not mm -hmm. impossible. Yeah, you've just made my work very, a lot harder. It went from a hobby, now it's a job. No, I'm joking. Um, <laughs> but we are on the Curiously Catholic podcast, and the way we start every episode is we get the person we're interviewing to tell them a bit about themselves from a Catholic sure. perspective. So, Christopher, were you a cradle Catholic or were you a convert? Yeah, I was baptized into the Catholic Church on November 28th, 1969. Uh, I was about to say I remember it well, but I don't remember anything about it. I was like three weeks old. And um, I was raised a Catholic in the 70s and 80s, went to Catholic schools for most of my life. But I was raised on what you might call, or I've come to call, the starvation diet gospel. <laughs> and by that I mean I, I felt this hunger deep in my bones for my whole life. And what I learned in religion class was your hunger's bad. You need to repress all that, but follow all these rules and you'll be a good upstanding Christian citizen. And that's why I became a convert in my teenage years to what I call the fast food gospel. And by that, I mean the secular culture's promise of immediate gratification for my hunger. Uh, I don't know about you, Dom, but if the only two choices are starvation or fast food, I'm hungry. I'm going for the chicken nuggets. So that's what I did. And I became a very indulgent teenager, you know, indulging in the pleasures of the world. But if you go along with that metaphor, the fast food, the grease and the sodium is eventually going to catch up to you. And that's a picture of me in my college years. So now we're in the late 80s. I'm in college and and I'm not feeling good. Like I'm feeling spiritually I am really sick. I am I have caused myself a lot of pain. And I did an experiment in the fall of 1988 that changed my life. I decided to stay sober for one weekend because I wanted to see what was really going on on the college campus. And doing that for one weekend opened my eyes to the illusion that everyone was immersed in. Uh, you see, here's, here's a, a basic truth. In a culture that sells us a counterfeit version of love and happiness, that same culture has to sell us 
all kinds of numbing agents to keep us from recognizing the pain that we're in. And so what I did that weekend in 1988 is I took away the numbing agent. I took away the alcohol for one weekend and enabled me to, and it enabled me to feel my pain and to see that the pain that everybody else was in as well. And that put me on my knees in a college dorm saying, God in heaven, if you exist, you better show me. And you better show me why you gave me all these desires and this hunger because it's getting me and everybody I know into a hell of a lot of trouble. And that was the beginning of a journey back into the church, Dom. And making a long story short, in the early 1990s, I discovered the teaching of St. John Paul II called the Theology of the Body. And I learned for the first time that Christianity is not a starvation diet. It's an invitation to a banquet. And if you think about it, if the contest is between starvation and fast food, the fast food wins every time. But if the contest is between the banquet and the fast food, the banquet wins. And when I discovered this theology of the body, I knew I was holding in my hands something as big as like the cure for cancer. And I knew I would spend the rest of my life studying it and sharing it with the world. And that's what I've been doing since the, the mid-1990s. Hmm. Since mid-1990s. So it's funny because the, uh, the, the, year, the, the fall that you went sober was, was when I was born. So obviously there's something good going on there. Um, but like, I mean, one thing that I just absolutely love about Theology Body is, because I, I always fall into this trap of, um, oh yeah, that's just about, you know, sex and marriage. I'll go and read something else to know about how to be Catholic all the time. But just as you're talking then, it just hits me on so many levels. Like we already talked about my hobby of photography and how I can use theology of the body in that. But like another great love of mine is food. And like um, recently I've been, like the last three years I've done, I don't know if you've heard of Exodus 90. This is the third yes. year in a row that I've done it. But through, also through my time as a chaplain, when I was working with uh, Father Christopher Denham, I learned about beauty. And like in that, I, I started moving away from like, you know, McDonald's burgers and start moving towards real good quality food. And then all of a sudden it's like, I can't even look at McDonald's anymore. And it's that kind of banquet thing is there's a richness yes. that like when I was, when I was having McDonald's, I'd be like, ah, oh, it's too expensive. Don't eat that. It's just the same. And then as I, go deeper it's like man i just can't even look at that anymore it's just ah but i wanted you to maybe for those of you that are listening uh that maybe haven't heard of you before haven't really uh, heard of theology of the body i wanted to um i don't know if you'll remember this but we actually met in person once in the, the bottom of a church in saint in saint patrick soho and you got me to stand in front of a group of people and you made them objectify me, Christopher. You made them look at my body. You said, would you all look at Dom's body? And uh, yeah, so why did you do that? <laughs> yes, this is, a, this is an illustration I do at my events where I, I illustrate that the world has taught us to look at the body as something rather than as seeing the body as someone, right? There's a big difference between looking and seeing. And Jesus says, we look, but we do not see. 
And the invitation of the gospel is to come and become one who sees. So uh, here's a little rhyme for you I came up with. It goes like this. Who has been unscathed by the incessant lies of a media culture that will prize and idolize bodies idealized and hyper-eroticized, but criticize and despise any shape and size it cannot commoditize. We need new eyes if we are to realize that the true value of the body lies, not in being objectivized, standardized, and commercialized, but in being baptized, spiritualized, divinized. And this is what the theology of the body supplies. <laughs> this is the gift of John Paul II's theology of the body. It opens our eyes to the body as the revelation of the mystery of the person. This is why theology of the body is for everybody. As you were saying, it's not just about sex and marriage. It's about how to be Catholic all the time. It's about how to be a man or woman made in the image and likeness of God. Because when we see what the body really reveals, it not only reveals the mystery and dignity of the human person, it reveals God's eternal plan of love. How so? Well, the Bible from beginning to end, if you look at it correctly, it tells a story about marriage. The Bible begins in the book of Genesis with our creation as male and female and the call of the two to become one flesh. It begins with a wedding in an earthly paradise. Throughout the Old Testament, God speaks of his love for his people as the love of a husband for his bride. In the New Testament, the love of the eternal bridegroom is literally embodied when the word is made flesh. Skip to the end of the story. The book of Revelation describes heaven as an eternal marriage, the marriage of Christ and the church. So the Bible, the Bible begins with the marriage of man and woman. It ends with the marriage of Christ and the church. And this gives us the key that unlocks the whole story. Dom, you've heard me say this before because you've taken my courses. Here's the whole Bible in five words. What is it, Dom? You tell everybody. Whole Bible in five words. Uh, um, <laughs> I don't know. You put me on the spot now. You just um, took my class. You forgot the you forgot the key line. I've just been learning about pregnancy and birth. Sorry, Karen. God wants to. No, it's gone. Sorry, bro. You did take my class, didn't you, Dom? I did. I did. God wants to marry us. Yes. God wants to marry us. That's the whole Bible in five words. And you just said, what did you just say? You've been learning about what? Birth. And, uh, so you've been learning. You've been learning about the theology of the body, whether you knew it or not. Yes. Because no, it's phenomenal. Not only here's the mystery. This is what our body tells us. This is what being male and female tells us. Not only does God love us, not only does He want to marry us, He wants His bride to conceive eternal life. And it's not just a metaphor. There was a woman 
who walked this planet who said yes to God's marriage proposal with such fidelity and totality that she literally conceived eternal life in her womb. You see, God wanted this eternal plan that he loves us, wants to marry us, wants to fill the bride with eternal life. He wanted this plan to be so plain to us, he chiseled it right in our bodies. This is the theology of our bodies. It tells the divine story. We don't see this because we're just looking at the body. We look, but we do not see. So we all have to pray, Lord, open my eyes so that I can realize that the true value of the body lies in being baptized, personalized, and divinized. That's what the theology of the body supplies. That's that's. I love that like uh, that that rhyme that you come up with. It just like every word is kind of like you think, is he just using it to rhyme? But then like as you think about it, it just takes you deeper and deeper and deeper. And um, yeah, that's brilliant. I think it, yeah, theology of the body really has touched every like corner of my life. And like one thing that I really love that you do and that you bring to theology of the body as like I haven't I haven't, I haven't read. John Paul's um, um, lectures, but I assume he doesn't right. bring uh, Cameron Diaz and um, pop culture into it. I assume that's all, all right. you. And so, like, I was because um, especially in your TOB one course where you shared that song, uh, I can't remember the band, and you talked about when you drove home and you just cried the whole way, and then you you got oh yeah, the it. flaming lips. Oh, the flaming mate. lips is the band. The song, the song is called uh, "It Overtakes Me." Yeah, yeah. I listened to that on repeat for like the next. Like I was already listening to it in the evening, and I would just, I just listen to that on repeat for like three or four times. It's like when it gets to that halfway point, it's just like it transforms yeah. and just takes you away. Eh? So like I, I wanted to ask you a bit more about that because obviously music is a massive part of your journey, and the way that you yes. explain theology of the body. So um, can you maybe? Could you maybe explain to us the experience you have when you listen to even secular music and how it helped you fall deeper in love with God? And I'm thinking about, yeah, that Flaming Lips song specifically, um, or maybe sure. or any other songs that may be a bit more recent. Yeah, well, I'll, I'll go back to when I was eight years old and I heard Bruce Springsteen on the radio singing his 70s anthem, Born to Run. I'm lying in my bed and and Springsteen is singing this song about trying to get somewhere and he's running. He wants to get to this place. He doesn't know what it is, but he's trying to get there and he's trying to get there with a girl named Wendy. Little did I know that 17 years later, I would marry a girl named Wendy. This song was like a prophecy of my whole life. And at the end of this song, he says to Wendy, someday, girl, I don't know when we're going to get to that place where we really want to go and we'll walk in the sun. But till then, tramps like us, baby, we were born to run. And then Springsteen just cracks open his rib cage and he lets this cosmic cry come out of his heart. And it's just this, this, groan this this groan comes out of him 
And there I am lying in my bed and it's like the ceiling splits open and I'm staring into the mystery of the universe. Whatever Springsteen wanted, I wanted it too. Mm. But here's the tragedy of my Catholic upbringing, um, which wasn't, in many ways, wasn't very Catholic. It was quite anti-Catholic. It, it wasn't the real Catholicism I was getting because I could summarize religion class with one word, boring. Nobody in my religion class, my religion teachers never connected the dots for me between what I experienced when my heart cracked open hearing Springsteen on the radio and what I was learning in religion class. Good art, and, and this is important, good art. Uh, there's, a, <laughs> there's a lot of bad art out there, right? And there's a lot of bad secular music. I'm not here to baptize it all or say it's all good. It's not all good. A lot of it is really messed up. But I do want to say this, and it's a basic principle of Catholic cosmology. If we get this wrong, we get the whole universe wrong. Here's the principle. The devil doesn't have his own clay. All he can do is take God's clay, and remember, God looked at everything he made and said, behold, it's very good. The devil takes God's clay and he twists it up, right? I call rock and rollers, I call them the twisted mystics because they're on to something. They're, they're looking for something, but it often gets twisted up. But there's still something good in there that got twisted up. So music, even, even, even if it's twisted up, there's something good in there that has gotten twisted up. And we need to learn, with God's help, to untwist it. When I, when I came to my faith, I mean, music was a huge part of my, my childhood, my teenage years. I, I joined a band when I was 14 years old. And I was in lots of bands as a teenager and into my 20s. And when I came to my faith in my early 20s, I had to look at my music collection and I... I threw a lot of it out because a lot of it was really twisted up stuff. But later in life, as I grew and, and as I matured in my Christian life, I, I realized that there was something in that music I was attracted to beyond just the distortion. I was attracted to the goodness that was in there that had gotten twisted up. And the Lord was able to help me untwist what was twisted up so that I could rediscover the goodness. And it was, a, it was a turning point for me maybe 15 years ago, 16 years ago, when um, I was getting to know a priest who's been my spiritual director now for 16 years. And he said to me, tell me about your prayer life. And I said, you know, one of the biggest struggles I have in my prayer life is I go to pray and I try to quiet my heart to listen to what God might be saying to me. And I start hearing songs in my head. And he got a smile on his face and he said, uh, he said, you think that's a distraction? Mm -hmm. And I said, well, yeah, I mean, I'm trying to listen to God and I'm hearing Bono or Bon Jovi or Springsteen or, you know, whoever else I'm hearing these songs in my head. And he said, well, is that music important to you? Like, does it have some connection with your heart? And I said, well, yeah, that's the music I grew up listening to. And he said, you don't think God knows the language of your heart? You don't think God can speak to you through Bruce Springsteen 
or through you two. And I had never thought about it really. He said, the next time you go to pray and you hear a song come into your mind or your heart, listen to the lyrics and see if God is trying to speak to you through those lyrics. Dom, it changed my life. For 10 years, I thought that was a distraction in prayer. When all along, God was trying to sing to my heart. And he knows, he knows the language that I speak. He knows the language that you speak. Yeah. And if he's going to be speaking to us in prayer, he's going to speak to us through the language of our hearts. It, it's, it, a week does not go by that I don't hear music in my, in my heart when I'm praying. And, and sometimes maybe I'm just making it up. It's possible. But I would say 80 to 90% of the time that that happens, it's the way heaven is speaking to my heart. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that. I remember one of my first experiences of this um, was, I can't remember the name of the band now, but I was just listening to this one song on repeat all the time. And there's this one line that just like, it was like, um, it wasn't by a Christian band, uh, which which what struck me first, because the, the line is, nail in my hand from my creator. You gave me life, now show me how to live. And I'm like, that's Jesus on the cross. And like, yes, I was yes. just... I would just say what this means, but there is a non-Christian band singing this very Christian line. Um, but more recently, uh, I don't know if you've, I think you've talked on this, um, a movie that came out, well, was remade recently uh, with Lady Gaga and, um, oh, what's the fella called? Oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Uh, Star, is, Star born. is Born. Yeah, oh, the, the Shallow song. Just recently, Gel, I've just yeah. been playing that on guitar, and I've just been like savoring the words. It's just like the, the, that yearning of the heart. It's like if you just listen to those lyrics, it's like, like tell me something, girl. Are you um, bored of this modern world? Are you happy in this modern world, or yeah. do you want more? Is there yeah. something that you're searching for? Yeah, was, yes, see, that's, yes. <laughs> that's the thing I love about these artists is they're, they're just being honest. They're looking in mm. their hearts mm. and they're saying what's in there and then they they get it out. They get it out. Mm. And sometimes it's not really pretty. Sometimes it's raw and rough and, and even ugly, but it's honest. And this is, the, this is what makes good art. It's always honest. As yeah. John Paul II says in his letter to artists, he says, even when art expresses some of the darkest and most disturbing aspects of our humanity, it is still in some way a cry for redemption, mm. right? And it can form a bridge to religious experience. You know, none of this is to say that, you know, it's, we don't need to be discerning. We do need to be discerning. The wheat and the weeds grow together. But just because there's weeds in something doesn't mean we have to throw the whole thing out. We need to say, okay, there are weeds. I, I can put that aside, but there's a lot of wheat right here as well. And I can benefit from that. And to do otherwise is really not a Catholic view of the world. When we put too strict a, a separation between the sacred and the secular, 
we're really acting against mm. the very principle of reincarnation, right? There is a marriage between the sacred and the secular. That's the very principle of the incarnation. That's the very principle of heaven coming to earth, of God taking flesh, that there is a marriage between the sacred and the secular, between heaven and earth. And, and when we rupture that and we say, no, it has to be something totally holy and sacred over here and something and the rest of the world, that's just evil. That's not a view, that's not a Catholic view of the universe. That's a puritanical view of the universe. It's a dualistic view of the universe. It's a ruptured heretical view of the universe. The wheat and the weeds grow together. And remember what Jesus says here. He says, we have to be discerning, of course, but he says, don't be too zealous about pulling the weeds out. Because if you're too zealous in pulling those weeds out, you're also going to pull the wheat up with it. Mm. So, yeah, we, we have to be discerning, but we have to we have to recognize, yeah, there's something really good there. There's something my heart was attracted to in listening to that music growing up. And it wasn't just something inherently bad. There was something good that drew my heart. Let me quote here from uh, one of my books where I, I quote Springsteen himself. This was 30 years after I heard that song on the radio, um, Born to Run. Bruce Springsteen was inducting U2, my other favorite band, into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And Springsteen himself told me 30 years later what happened to me when I was eight years old and I heard that song on the radio. Listen to this. He says, a great rock band, a great rock band searches for the same kind of combustible force that fueled the expansion of the universe after the Big Bang. They want the earth to shake and spit fire. They want the sky to split apart and for God to pour out. Then he paused and he said a bit, a bit sheepishly, it's embarrassing to want so much and expect so much from music, except sometimes it happens. There it is. That's, mm. that's what happened to me when I was eight years old listening to Springsteen on the radio. And 30 years yeah. later, Springsteen explained it to me. God opened, the sky split open and God fell out when I was eight years old. God was wooing my heart through that song. I have no doubt about it. Mm. Yeah, that's that's like just yeah, exactly what you said. Like is to expect so much from music is ridiculous, but like sometimes it happens. And I feel like that like that speaks to us all. It's like to expect um I guess, you know, because we're called to be holy as our Father in heaven is always to, to expect that level of holiness from, from me, you know, that's ridiculous. But you know what? If I keep playing the music, if I keep writing the songs, sometimes I might achieve it. Um, and I guess like going through this music and how music can, can bring the, you know, almost, almost sacramental. It kind of brings that invisible to a sort of tangible, like it is sacramental. Way. It's not almost sacramental. All right. It is sacramental. That's that's what music that's what good art does. It mm -hmm. makes tangible and visible 
what is invisible and intangible. That's what it does. And, and you know, we were talking earlier about the, the Bible, starting with the marriage of man and woman, ending with the marriage of Christ and the church. Well, guess what's right in the middle? When you bring those two marriages together to meet in the middle, you're right in the song of songs, right? The Bible claims that it has the lyrics to the greatest song ever written. And guess what it's all about? The Song of Songs is erotic love poetry, sacred, erotic love poetry. And every, every love song that you hear on the radio, as twisted up as it might be, it's a twisted, broken human attempt to sing the Song of Songs. And if you can untwist it, you're going to find yourself in the poetry of the Song of Songs. Rock and roll music is is the twisting up of the Song of Songs. That's really what it is. Untwist it, and you're in the Song of Songs. And yeah. not all of it's twisted up. I mean, some of it's pretty straightforward, beautiful. Mm. Would that be that be you too? Right? You just have to, again, you have to be discerning. You have yes. to be discerning. This is not to uh, canonize all the music out there. Not at all. You have to be discerning. Yeah. Well, because this brings me to kind of like, so Curiously Catholic is part of the Evangelion Apostolate, and our mission is like evangelization. It's how do we bring this 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 beauty, this truth that we've been given to people that don't even recognize it. And um, yes, so I, one of the things that you talked about in your Theology of the Body 1, TOB 1 course, that's what it's called, right? It's like bringing that yeah. head knowledge, the heart knowledge to head knowledge and just combining them, but like one line that you talked about, and it just cut me through all the way. And it's like, cause, cause I knew the truth of it, but I don't know how to articulate it to someone. So like, so how do we articulate the truth of the Bible um, to those that don't believe? And I'm thinking specifically of that line. Uh, have you not read that the one that made them um, from the beginning made them male and female? And then there's also, I think maybe you talked about this in your podcast as well, is um, in the beginning, it was not so. Um, and because that's a that's a that's a, a really big one, like the way that you talked about it in your podcast is like in this culture today, it's like in the beginning, it was not so. And, you know, we were created in a specific way and for a specific purpose. And like theology of the body. Yes. You know, that's what people sometimes think theology of the body is just about, but that that is a big part of it. But from there, you go outwards to even deeper truth. So, like, how do we how do we articulate these these things that are quite um, hard to take nowadays? How do we articulate it in a way that is sharing the truth with love? Yes, let let me say a few words about those scriptures that you quoted and and why they're important, and then I'll link it back to the second question about proclaiming these truths with love in a, in a world that has rejected them. So the, the context for those scriptures is the Pharisees come to Jesus to question him about marriage. And they specifically want to know, is it okay for a man to divorce, to divorce his wife? And Jesus says, haven't you read that in the beginning... God made them male and female and called the two to become one flesh. What God has joined, we cannot separate. And that reference to the beginning is absolutely critical 
Jesus is saying, look, there was an original plan and, and you've fallen from it. And, and I'm here, I've come into the world to restore creation to the purity of its origins, right? And they, they're like, well, Moses allowed us to divorce our wives. And Jesus says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your heart. And then Jesus says, but from the beginning, it was not so, right? So what's the beginning? The beginning is the blueprint of our humanity. The beginning is the original plan for our humanity. And in the beginning, we read that the man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. Right? Why were they naked without shame? They were naked without shame because they were filled to overflowing with God's love. They experienced sexual desire in the beginning as nothing but the desire to love in the image of God because they were filled with this love of God. That's what was flowing out of their bodies, right? They saw in their bodies, right? A man's body doesn't make sense by itself. A woman's body doesn't make sense by itself. But seen in light of each other, they discovered the call to holy communion in the image of God, right? God himself is an eternal exchange of life-giving love and communion. God is not sexual. That's not the point. But our sexuality is a reflection, or it's meant to be, a reflection of that eternal life-giving communion of God. They understood this in the beginning. They were filled with this love and this vision in the beginning. But here's the tragedy of original sin. They ran out of wine. What does that mean? Wine is a symbol in the Bible of God's love poured out. Right? When the man and the woman ran out of wine, they no longer had that divine love in them to share with one another. And now they no longer see the divine plan revealed through their naked bodies. Rather, they're looking at their naked bodies as objects to use for their own pleasure because they've run out of wine. That's why they hide. That's why they cover their bodies, right? We cover our bodies in a fallen world not because they're bad. We cover our bodies in a fallen world because they're so good, but we've lost a real ability to honor them and to respect the goodness of the body. We treat the body as a thing for our own selfish pleasure. But here's the good news of the gospel. Dom, where does Jesus perform his first miracle? Wedding at Cana. At a wedding. And what happened to that married couple? They ran out of? Wine. They ran out of wine. This is a symbol of the original sin. And Dom, what does Jesus do for this married couple who ran out of wine? Does he scold them or shame them for running out of wine? What does he do? He gives them better wine. He gives them better wine and better wine in super abundance. Do you know how much wine Jesus brought to this party? About 750 bottles, if you do the math. 125 gallons, if you do the math. This is a lot of wine. Where, where do we get the idea that Jesus is a party pooper? Mm. The, goal, the goal of the Christian life from this perspective is to get totally wasted on God's wine. 
get wasted on God's wine. What did they accuse the apostles of on Pentecost Day when God's love fell upon them? Everybody thought they were drunk. Yeah. They were drunk on God's wine. See, here's here's how I want to link this now back to your question about how do we bring this to people? We have to witness to the world that there is a banquet that corresponds to our hunger, that there is a wine that corresponds to our thirst, right? We have to get people in touch with their deepest hunger and thirst. Christianity is for hungry people. It's not just about following a bunch of rules, right? Think about the parable of the prodigal son. What caused him to leave his father's house? He was hungry and he didn't think his father was going to feed him. Mm. So he went out to see what he could get elsewhere. What brought him back to the father's house? He had exhausted everything the world had to offer and he was hungrier than ever. And he said, I know my father will feed me. And he went back and his father threw this grand celebration. He slaughtered the fatted calf, right? But what was the older brother doing? The older brother, mind you, who had been following all the rules, but the older brother refused to go into the celebration, right? How tragic. The celebration is the symbol of heaven. How tragic that this guy who thought being part of the father's family was just about following rules, he never entered the celebration. See, the celebration, the Christian celebration is for hungry people. It's for people who know and feel how hungry they really are. And they realize Christianity is an invitation to a wedding feast. What does Jesus say about evangelization? He says, go out into the main streets and tell everyone they're going to hell. <laughs> no, that's not what he says. He says, go out into the main streets and invite everyone to the wedding feast. This is our faith. It is a banquet. It is an invitation to the satisfaction of the deepest yearnings and desires of our hearts. That's Christianity. Anything else, if we're not proclaiming that, we're not proclaiming the Catholic faith. We're proclaiming some moralism or legalism or rigorism, uh, all of which has been condemned by the church as heresy. We have to get people in touch with their hunger, and we have to witness to the fact that there is a banquet that corresponds to that hunger. Mm -hmm. And that's why the theology of the body changed my life, because that's what it's all about. Yeah, so I guess, like, if you want, like, a first step in this journey is, like, we have to find that banquet for ourselves first. And I think, you know, that's essentially what the, the mission of Evangelion is, is to be, like, you know, a signpost to where the food is. Um, because I think, you know, I definitely feel this in my in my own life and like peaks and troughs of kind of like you know one moment i'm like i'm definitely i'm eating this up and then i get, i don't know i get full and i go off off the path and then i'm like i'm just i'm just like this is like a dead faith to me i'm just i'm just saying the rosary but i'm not praying it and then i have to so then what yeah because you can't give what you don't have right and correct uh what do they say on the airlines they say first put your own oxygen mask on and then help others 
Mm. Right. If we are not breathing in this clean air ourselves, we're not going to be able to help anybody else. If we haven't tasted the riches of this banquet, we're not going to be able to bring anybody else to it either. I, I once heard it said that evangelization is nothing other than one hungry person showing another hungry person where to find good bread. And, mm. and let me make a connection again with secular music. When you turn on Spotify or wherever you listen to music, you're going to hear this cry of the hungry heart, right? Again, Bruce Springsteen has that song. I'm dating myself. It's back now in the, in the 80s. But Springsteen used to say, everybody's got a hungry heart, right? Everybody's got a hungry heart. But we also have to ask ourselves, to quote from the Rolling Stone, why can't Mick Jagger find any satisfaction? Right? This guy tries and he tries and he tries and he tries, but he can't get no satisfaction. Why? Because we're made for infinite satisfaction. And Mick Jagger is aiming it at finite pleasure. You're never going to be satisfied when you aim your desire for infinite satisfaction at finite pleasure. But here's the deal. We have a song as Catholics to sing to Bruce Springsteen in his hungry heart. And we have a song to sing to Mick Jagger who can't get no satisfaction. And it goes like this. You satisfy the hungry heart with gift of finest wheat. Come give to us, O oh saving Lord, the bread of life to eat. Oh my God, if the Eucharist is real, mm -hmm. then bread has come down from heaven and there is an infinite bread to satisfy my infinite hunger. If that's real, we got to tell the whole world. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so like that's been like because my journey in the past couple of years is I went from living in a kind of Catholic bubble in uh, the chaplaincy as a chaplain, and then I went into becoming a student where I didn't know who was Christian, whether they liked Catholics, you know, all this, and I was really challenged when I was talking to friends like, "What do I say I do on Sundays?" Uh, it's like, ah, oh, I just go to church. Or I could say, you know, I go to mass and then they could be like, okay, so what's a mass? And I could say, ah, oh, it's just like a church service. Or I could say it's the coming together of heaven and earth. And, and like, you know, these are the things that make me go to mass, you know, these realizations. So it's like, if I don't share these things that make me go to mass, why would, why would anyone else go to mass? You know? Um, yes. You could say is, I take my desire for infinite satisfaction to the bread come down from infinite life. I take my hunger to the banquet. I mm. aim all my desire for infinite satisfaction at infinity itself. That's what we do at the mass. Mm. That's what liturgy is. Liturgy is opening our longing for God to God. As the fathers of the church tell us, prayer and that's what liturgy is, it's the pinnacle of prayer. Prayer is nothing other than becoming a longing for God. That's what prayer is. 
And liturgy, here I'm going to quote Psalm 81. Liturgy is where we respond to God saying to us, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it, says the Lord. Open wide your hunger and I will fill it, says the Lord. That's the mess. Mm, yeah, I mean, it's it's little things like that through like uh, stories about St. Thomas Aquinas and his devotion to the Eucharist. And then like even just paying attention to scripture when I'm praying the rosary or paying attention to the scriptures spoken in mass and actually like when I do have the time to mull them over uh, actually doing it. I was, I was going to wear my uh, Eucharistic t-shirt. I've got a t-shirt that's uh, got a big picture of the Eucharist here that glows in the dark. And on the back it says, it's either Jesus or we're worshiping bread. So I was wearing that this morning, but then my eight week old puked all over it. So I'm now wearing a t-shirt about fishing, which is kind of Christian, you know, bread and bread and the fishes and the loaves. So this is a Absolutely. New Zealand delicacy. This is a chocolate fish. Um, we'll have to get you over to New Zealand and we'll get you some of these. Fun. Um, but like, I did want to talk to you a bit about your Theology of the Body One course. Uh, so yes. uh, the Evangelion team have just uh, completed this recently. And I mean, ugh, it just floored me. Like, I just, I, just, I mean, I, I, can't, I can barely articulate the questions I have because there's just so many of them. And um, one thing that really impressed me is how you just, you said it's, it's, not, a, it's not a course about theology, it's, it's, it's a language course. Is that, how did you articulate that again? Yes, I said, I, I know you guys think you, you came here to take a theology class, but it's a language class. Mm. And, and we're going to be reflecting on the meaning of the word. And the mm. word reveals it by taking flesh, right? The body has a language. And we need to learn how to read that language, right? This is this is the this is Christmas. Christmas is the mystery of ultimate meaning. That's what we mean when we say the word. We mean the ultimate meaning taking on flesh in order to reveal through the flesh the ultimate meaning of everything. This is the language of God. The, the language of God is the human body. That's what the incarnation is, right? It's God speaking to us through the body. God speaks to us through body language. At the source and summit of everything we believe is the body of Christ given up for us. God's body language. That's why I said this theology of the body is really a language class. It's a language class in the language of the body. And the language of the body is divine love. That's the meaning of our bodies. We are meant to express divine love. But look at what the world tells us. The world tells us that our bodies are meaningless. The church tells us that our bodies reveal ultimate meaning. The culture tells us our bodies are meaningless. So this is the war between the church and the rest of the world. The church proclaims that the body reveals ultimate meaning and the rest of the world says the body has no meaning, mm. right? This is the battle. Here I quote St. John Paul II. This is the battle between the word and the anti-word. It's a battle between the incarnation and you might say the excarnation, the split. This is what the devil always wants to do. He wants to rupture us from our bodies. 
if we are trying to live a spiritual life divorced from our bodies, we're dead <laughs> because that's what death is. Death is the rupture of body and soul. And if we are if we are bent on divorcing ourselves from our bodies, we can make no sense of a God who is committed to wedding himself to the body. Right? Religion in a general sense is thought to be a flight from the body to reach God. This is not Christianity. Christianity is the exact opposite movement. It's God taking on a body to reach us. This is why theology of the body is Christianity itself. You know, John Paul II says, if we think it's strange to speak of the body as a theology, it shouldn't if we believe in the incarnation. Because through the fact that the word of God became flesh, the body entered theology through the main door. Theology of the body is nothing but a reflection on the mystery of the word made flesh and what that says to us about the meaning of our bodies. This is why theology of the body is for everybody. Yeah. If you have a body, this applies. This applies. This applies. So um, because I can't articulate how uh, like awesome this course was and the effect it really had on me, um, because like I, I need to take it again just because like I need just to <laughs> just soak in it a bit longer. Um, but there is an opportunity to take the course again, I believe, in the end of March. Uh, that's right. Uh, the start of April or end of March, start of April, we have another online course that we're offering. And uh, gosh, I should have given you the link. Uh, they, we can just go to theologythebody.com and click on our, our list of courses. So go to theologythebody.com, click the list of courses, and you'll see this offering for the online course coming at the end of March, beginning of April. We'll post the link in the show notes so you can, if you can send us that later. Great. Um, but yeah, I mean, so like Theology of Bali for you, like it transformed your life. Uh, it meant it went, you went from actually from, from being a, a Catholic in the sense that you were baptized to someone that is able to fully engage with the, their own faith and to understand a bit more of God, would you say? How I would put it, Dom, I would say that what Theology of the Body helped me with is connecting the dots between Catholic doctrine and the deepest desires of my heart, and to recognize that the two are like puzzle pieces that go right together. Mm. That what the Catholic Church really proposes to the world, not what people think the Catholic Church proposes to the world, because that's the starvation diet. That is not Catholicism, but that's what people think Catholicism is. And if that's what Catholicism is, give me the chicken nuggets any day. Give me the fast food any day over that starvation nonsense and BS. I don't want anything to do with starvation. I am hungry for a banquet. That is the truth of my heart. Mm. I, don't, I don't need the Pope to tell me that. I don't need my mom and dad to tell me that. I know it because I know it because I know it. I am hungry for something. And what I discovered in the theology of the body is that there is really a banquet that corresponds to the hunger. And so how can you not give your whole life to that? And if you've discovered that banquet, how can you not want to invite the rest of the world to discover it too? 
Mm. Again, evangelization is just one hungry person showing another hungry person where to find good food. Mm. Man, so much good stuff. I've got heaps and heaps more questions for you, but I think I'll just turn to the comments box because there's a couple of questions there. Um, sure. Okay. Uh, so one question is um, from Joshua. Do you think people largely don't trust their own discernment or experience as trustworthy or of God? Uh, so like earlier you were talking about, you were talking about discernment and that's when this popped up. So yes. what would you say to that? Yeah, I think there are different stages in our Christian journey where, you know, as we're starting out the journey, it's called the purgative stage of the journey as we're starting out. And there's a lot of garbage and a lot of junk in our minds and our hearts and our desires that need to be purged, right? But the more we make that journey, John Paul II says, the lights start to come on and we enter into the illuminative stage of the journey. And in this stage, we start to see the world more as, the, as God sees the world. And our hearts are drawn to what God is drawn to. And our hearts are repulsed by what God is repulsed by the more we make that journey. So someone who's further on the journey might not have the same struggles that someone who's starting out the journey has, right? And, and there's even more beyond the illuminative stage. There's the unitive stage of the journey. This is where John Paul II lived most of his life. This is where Mother Teresa lived most of her life in the unitive stage of the journey, where you feel in your heart what God feels in his heart for the most part. Not that even the saints are not perfect, right? But, but here's my point. In the earlier stages of our Christian journey, we could have a right skepticism of our desires. And we need to be purified. And we need to carry some of that healthy skepticism with us throughout our lives. But as we mature, as John Paul II says, we come to escape the constant danger of falling into sin. And we begin to be able to discover God even in the very things that once led us away from God, we rediscover that what we were looking for the whole time was God. So that's that's part of Christian maturity. As we mature, we gain a more trustful discernment. But it's a process and it takes a long time. Mm. I, hope that, I hope that shines a light for this questioner. Yeah, it's kind of coming back to that uh, Springsteen quote. It's all like, we, it's a lot to expect of us, but if we just keep trying, sometimes it happens, you know? Uh, yes. which, and yes. Josh has a follow-up uh, question on this, and it's kind of referring to the uh, like the war that we have uh, between like good and evil, between the world and heaven. And he says, uh, how can we help people to have confidence in identifying um, the leading of the Lord and identifying the leading of uh Satan. Um, yes. People are, yeah. I, I, here's, here's the litmus test, Josh. It's right here. And St. John says this in his letters. So it's uh, 1 John and 2 John. You'll find this. He says, this is how you test the spirits. The spirit that acknowledges Christ come in the flesh is of God. The spirit that denies Christ come in the flesh is is the enemy, the Antichrist. That's how we tell the difference. Is this an incarnational movement or an excarnational movement? The Holy Spirit always moves in the direction 
of giving flesh to the word. The, the antichrist spirit, the diabolical spirit, always moves in the opposite direction of, of excarnation, of taking the flesh away from Christ, of, of leading you to despise the physical world. Christianity does not despise the physical world. If the body and the physical world are evil, then the incarnation is blasphemous. The litmus test is this. Does the spirit lead to incarnation or does it lead to excarnation? Excarnation is from the devil. Incarnation is from the Holy Spirit. Mm. So it's kind of like, yeah, what's the purpose? What's the, the root cause or the, 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 the end and what's going to happen? Um, yes, awesome. Yes, and not only, this, not, only the, oh. not only the end, but also the means. Uh, Christ came not just to save souls. He came to redeem the whole human being, body and soul. And so St. Paul calls Jesus the Savior of the body because he came to redeem our bodies. That's Romans chapter 8 and Ephesians chapter 5. He's the Savior of the body. And the fathers of the church would put it this way. Christianity is not salvation from the flesh. It is salvation of the flesh, right? So true Christian spirituality is always about integrating mm. the spiritual and the physical. It is always incarnational spirituality. If you want a spirituality that does not involve your body, that does not involve Jesus's body, that does not involve the church, that does not involve the stuff of this physical world through the sacraments, then it's no longer Christian spirituality. It's a spirituality that comes from the Antichrist. Mm. That's what St. John means when he says, this is how you tell the difference. Mm. Yeah, and I think that's another like element of like, I don't know, I've definitely felt it's cool in my life is that to that, live that intentionality of, you know, remembering that, you know, if it's created, it's good because God creates. It's and good. The, yeah. And we're back, we're back to that principle that the devil doesn't have his own clay. Mm. Mm. Right. So, so when we're presented with like something, even if it's like an ideology or a thought, it's like there is, we need to, rather than just like write it off or get rid of it, we need to sit with it and say, okay, where's the good and where's the bad? And we need to, it's about that. Yes. That painful process of refining ourselves and the things that are in front of us. Let me give you a demonstration here. Let me uh, hang on one sec. You you'll remember this, Dom, from the from the class. You remember my crumpled paper demonstration? Yes. So, I want everybody to imagine this is man and woman, just as God created them to be when they were naked and felt no shame. This is a painting of man and woman naked without shame. And it is the most beautiful painting we can possibly imagine because we are the crown of God's creation, right? God loves this painting. He made this painting to reveal his own mystery of life-giving love, that God is a communion of life-giving love. This is the purpose of our creation as male and female. It's a sign of heaven. And this is why the enemy hates this painting. He hates our bodies because our bodies reveal the mystery of God. 
And he wants us to hate our bodies as much as he hates our bodies. And so he aimed all his poisonous arrows right at this painting with the original sin. And it got all twisted up. This is what happened to that beautiful painting with original sin. And here is the error of spiritual people, right? And I mean that in a, in a ruptured kind of way. Spiritual people look at this painting in its crumpled up form and it looks like trash. So they think the solution is to throw it away. This is not our faith. Nothing gets thrown away. It gets redeemed, right? Mm. To throw it away is not Catholicism. It's Puritanism, right? So the sexual revolution comes around as a response to Puritanism, and it reaches into the trash can, and the sexual revolution says to the world, hey, everybody, you shouldn't throw this away. The sexual revolution was right to tell us we shouldn't throw this away. But where was the sexual revolution wrong? It left the painting in its crumpled up form, right? And it's told the world, here's what you want. Here's what you want. It gave us the fast food, right? Mm. And it is better than throwing it away. But here's what John Paul II's theology of the body does. He also pulled this out of the trash can and started saying to the modern world, you mustn't throw this away. But by reflecting on the redemption of our bodies in Jesus Christ, John Paul II in his theology of the body uncrumpled the painting for us so we could see again the true, beautiful, wonderful plan of God for making us male and female in the first place. This is our faith, the uncrumpling of the painting, not the throwing away. And this principle holds true for everything. The music I listened to as a teenager was all crumpled up. It was messed up. The solution is not to throw it away. The solution is to let the Holy Spirit in there to uncrumple it so you can see the beautiful thing that got crumpled up. This is called Christianity. <laughs> this uncrumpling of the paper is called the redemption of our bodies, and it extends to the redemption of everything in the universe. This is good news. We got to tell the whole world, but we can't tell the whole world if we don't know it ourselves. This is why the new evangelization is aimed primarily at people who are already baptized because people grow up in the church and they never hear, so many people never hear the real gospel. They hear a, a puritanical version of the gospel. And, and no wonder people leave the church in droves for the fast food because nobody's inviting them to the banquet. So, Dom, you and I, we are commissioned to get ever deeper into the banquet ourselves so that we can be more and more effective witnesses to the glory of the banquet for others. Mm. Amen. We have one last question uh, from Gino. And he asks, he says, in the TOB courses I've run, I sometimes come across people who say things like, that's all really great and all, but it's more of an ideal and isn't always applicable or able to be practiced in every marriage relationship. How do you respond to people who question the realistic application of things like saving sex for marriage or NFP with, within marriage and those 
that have grown doubts uh, as a result of trying and repeatedly failing to apply the principles of TOB in their lives. Yeah. I'm going to respond with one of my favorite quotes from St. John Paul II. You'll find it in his document, Very Tatis Splendor, The Splendor of the Truth. And he's responding exactly to this objection. That's a nice ideal, but it doesn't really correspond to the concrete possibilities of fallen human beings. Well, guess what? There's a certain truth there because in our own broken humanity, nobody can live this. It's not about pulling yourself up by your bootstraps because nobody can live this on their own. But John Paul goes on to say, to whom is this teaching given? Is it given to men and women who are slaves to their own lusts? Or is it given to men and women who have been set free by the power of the Holy Spirit. He says, this is what is at stake, the reality of Christ's redemption. Christ has redeemed us. This means he has given us the possibility of realizing the entire truth of our humanity. And he goes on to say, if redeemed man still sins, it is not due to an imperfection in the redemptive act of Christ, but it's due to an unwillingness on our part to open our lives to the grace of the redemption. The gospel is certainly proportioned to our abilities, but to the ability of the person to whom the Holy Spirit has been given. We can't do it on our own. We have to fall on our knees when we recognize, I can't do this. We're being honest. But at that point, we have to fall on our knees and say, Lord, give me the ability to do what I can't do on my own. And here's the point. On our own, we cannot walk on water. The gospel is a call to walk on water. How can we do it? Only by fixing our eyes on Jesus. Right? We got to fix our eyes on Jesus and get our ass out of the boat. The Christian life is not in the boat. The Christian life is out there amidst the wind and the waves with our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's dangerous out there. It's scary out there. You might sink. Yep. If you take your eyes off Jesus, you will sink. When Peter took his eyes off Jesus and he sank, what did Jesus say to him? What the heck are you doing out here? Get your butt back in the boat. That's not what Jesus said. He said, why did you doubt? Why did you take your eyes off me? And he reached out to save him. This is what we got to do. We got to get out of the boat with our eyes fixed on Jesus. It's not about arm, arm uh, muscling our ways through it with our own arm strength, right? It's about falling on our knees and saying, God, I can't do it. But in your grace, through your power, what is impossible for me is possible for you. Come, Jesus. Come change my life. Come work in my life. That's the gospel. That's the good news. Ah, so much information. So good. I love it. Uh, you really do have beautiful feet, uh, Christopher. And for those who Thank you. Those of you who don't know the reference, please do check out uh, 
Ask uh, Ask Christopher West's podcast. There, yeah, look at those. There's some good boots. <laughs> there you go. Beautiful feet. People that Why don't do understand that reference. Oh, it's, there's, there's layers. There's layers to these. Um, I have beautiful feet because of this. This is why I say this, that I have beautiful feet. Because of that scripture. How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Mm. And this is good news. This is good news. This is life-changing mm. news. If you let it come in, please, I beg you listeners out there, please take up a study of what St. John Paul II gave us. Take one of these courses on the theology of the body. If you like what I'm saying, you might want to listen to the podcast that I have with my mm. wife. Mm. It's called Ask Christopher West. We have over 100 episodes where we're just asking or answering people's questions. And you might also want to look at my YouTube channel and just Google theology of the body. There are a lot of other teachers out there doing a lot of great work. And I understand right there in, in New Zealand, you have Maria, uh, what's her name? Maria Pace. Maria Pace. Pace, yes, Maria Pace. Um, you were telling me about the great work that she's doing. So tap into what she's doing and learn more about what John Paul II has given us. For such a time as this, mm. when we're in the midst of all of this craziness in the culture where we don't know what it means to be male and female anymore, for such a time as this, have we been given St. John Paul II's Theology of the Body. But if you were, if you had the cure for cancer in your hands but you didn't inject it into your bloodstream, it wouldn't do you any good, mm. right? This is what we got to do. We got to inject it into our bloodstream so that it can change our lives and we can help change other people's lives. Amen. So yeah, you heard it here. He's got a podcast, he's got a YouTube channel, and he's got the most amazing courses online. If you can't get to the one in March, get in touch with um, Maria Pace. If you the theology of the body website we'll put it in the show notes after this so you can follow that um so like yeah go and seek this stuff out i mean i've i've uh, been on the courses i've run the courses and there's never once that i thought oh i've heard this before every time it cuts me right to the heart and i'm more and more on fire for this uh thank you very much chris uh, Christopher for all your hard work in sharing this you've been doing it for years and it's my joy I can't, I can't imagine doing anything else I have the greatest job in the world I just get to invite hungry people to the banquet it's a Amen. joy it's an absolute joy God bless you Dom and God bless all your listeners Thank you very much. And thank you, everyone else, for joining us on Curiously Catholic. This is an Evangelion apostolate. So if you like this podcast, do uh, leave us a good review on the podcast app that you're listening to us on. Share us. Uh, and if you like the mission that we're getting on with with Evangelion, visit our page on www.evangelion.com. And if you feel inclined to, please donate so that we can uh, grow this ministry into something uh, bigger to share the gospel to all nations um, so like share subscribe and we will see you in a couple of weeks uh, god bless <laughs>